Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Tuesday, January 2nd episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. A lot of great listening over there. Over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all approached from a biblical worldview. My brothers and sisters in Christ over there doing some great work for the kingdom. I would recommend you go over there. I will guarantee you, you're going to find something over there to listen to, and there's a real good chance you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. All right, well, the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast um, is a podcast that is dedicated to prayer, devotion, scripture reading, and to Bible study. So that that is those are our primary focuses. I'm, I may pontificate a little bit on some things of the day here and there, things that come up in some of our devotions and stuff that I want to speak a little bit more on, but those are our primary primary focus areas. All right. Well, with it being Tuesday, so we're going to be doing our regular Bible study, and then we're going to be continuing on in our, uh, our, our Bible study. I'm sorry, Bible reading we're going to do this morning, and then this evening we're going to do our Bible study continuing on in John chapter 17. So let's go ahead and open up this morning with the third day morning prayer called God, Creator, and Controller. Let's pray. Most High God, the universe with all its myriad creatures is thine, made by thy word, upheld by thy power, governed by thy will. But thou art also the Father of mercies, the God of all grace, the bestower of all comfort, the protector of the saved. Thou hast been mindful of us, hast visited us, preserved us, given us a goodly heritage, the holy scriptures, the joyful gospel, the Savior of souls. We come to thee in Jesus' name, make mention of his righteousness only, plead his obedience and sufferings, who magnified the law both in its precepts and penalty, and made it honorable. May we be justified by his blood, saved by his life, joined to his spirit. Let us take up his cross and follow him. May the agency of thy grace prepare us for thy dispensations. Make us willing that thou shouldst choose our inheritance, and determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer or enjoy. If blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares, and use not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to those afflictions which are necessary when we are tempted to wander. I'm sorry, when we are tempted to wander, hedge up our way, excite in us abhorrence of sin, wean us from the present evil world, assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land, where none is ever sick, and the sun will always shine. Amen. All right. Well, our devotion, sorry, our devotion this morning from uh, Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for January 2nd, the text for it is from Colossians 4.2, and it's just simply three words, continue in prayer. It is interesting to remark how large a portion of sacred writ is occupied with the subject of prayer, either in furnishing examples, enforcing precepts, or pronouncing promises. We scarcely open the Bible before we read, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And just as we are about to close the volume, the amen of an earnest supplication meets our ear. Instances are plentiful. Here we find a wrestling Jacob, there a Daniel who prayed three times a day, and a David <coughs> excuse me, who with all his heart called upon his God. On the mountain we see Elias, in the dungeon Paul and Silas. We have multitudes of commands and myriads of promises. What does this teach us but the sacred importance and necessity of prayer? We may be certain that whatever God has made prominent in his word, he intended to be conspicuous in our lives. If he has said much about prayer, it is because he, he knows we have much need of it. So deep are our necessities that until we are in heaven, we must not cease to pray. Dost thou want anything? Then I fear thou dost not know thy poverty. Hast thou no mercy to ask of God? Then may the Lord's mercy show thee thy misery. A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Prayer is the lisping of the believing infant, the shout of the fighting believer, the requiem of the dying saint falling asleep in Jesus. It is the breath, the watchword, the comfort, the strength, the honor of a Christian. If thou be a child of God, thou wilt seek thy father's face and live in thy father's love. Pray that this year thou mayest be holy, humble, zealous, and patient, 
have closer communion with Christ, and enter oftener into the banqueting house of his love. Pray that thou mayest be an example and a blessing unto others, and that thou mayest live more to the glory of thy master. The motto for this year must be, Continue in Prayer. How true that is, and, and that totally fits within the fact that we're dealing with, as MacArthur calls it, the real Lord's Prayer, or what other people talk about, John 17, the high priestly prayer, and we're going to talk about where that name comes from um, some more this evening. But again, like we talked about and like we, we spoke of last evening, you you cannot go into the scripture without coming across prayer, Old and New Testament. It's all over the place. The fact is, we have that whole chapter, John 17, that's prayer. But we have the whole book of the Psalms where a good chunk of them are prayers as well. So, obviously, it is of great importance. All right, well, our reading for today, we're going to read Genesis 3 and 4, Matthew 2, verse 13 through Matthew 3, verse 6, Psalm 2, and Proverbs 1, verses 7 through 9. Now the serpent was more, I'm sorry, Genesis 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you, whom you gave to be, to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them, then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 4 now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstborn of his flock, 
and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one who found him would strike him. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilhah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zilhah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilhah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, give ear to my word, for I have killed a man for striking me and a boy for wounding me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has sent for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. All right. <clears throat> Matthew 2, starting in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and departed for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod, in order that what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet <clears throat> would be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had carefully determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee. And, a, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew 3, the first six verses. Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. All right, in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Finally, Proverbs 1, verses 7 through 9. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. Hear, my son, your father's discipline, and do not abandon your mother's instruction, for they are a garland of grace for your head and ornaments about your neck. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I thank you for spending this time with me again, as I usually do. I, I truly pray that this time we spend together in the morning helps all of us to become more and more saturated in the word of God. We need to continue to expose ourselves to the word of God daily um, in, in multiple ways, in reading and meditation and in Bible study, as well as weekly in, in the preaching and teaching of the word. We've got to stay saturated in it. So I would pray that you do so. I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. We're going to close out with one from Valley of Vision. This is one, one called God the All. Let's pray. O God, whose will conquers all, there is no comfort in anything apart from enjoying Thee and being engaged in Thy service. Thou art all in all, and all enjoyments are what to me Thou makest them, and no more. I am well pleased with Thy will, whatever it is, or should be in all respects. And if Thou bidst me decide for myself in any affair, I would choose to refer all to Thee. For thou art intimately wise and cannot do amiss, as I am in danger of doing. I rejoice to think that all things are at thy disposal, and it delights me to leave them there. Then prayer turns wholly into praise, and all I can do is to adore and bless thee. What shall I give thee for all thy benefits? I am in a strait betwixt two, knowing not what to do. I long to make some retort, but have nothing to offer, and can only rejoice that thou doest all, that none in heaven or on earth shares thy honor. I can of myself do nothing to glorify thy blessed name, but I can through grace cheerfully surrender soul and body to thee. I know that thou art the author and finisher of faith, that the whole work of redemption is thine alone, that every good work or thought found in me is the effect of thy power and grace that thy sole motive in working in me to will and to do is for thy good pleasure. O God, it is amazing that men can talk so much about man's creaturely power and goodness, when if thou didst not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. This, by bitter experience, thou hast taught me concerning myself. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good day. God bless. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Tuesday, January 2nd episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, well, we're going to be getting into our Bible study and John chapter 17. But first, we're going to open up with a prayer. Um, again, what we're starting to use is 
at the throne of grace. It's a book of prayers put together by, from, by John MacArthur's children that John preached or, or used. So they put it together. So we're trying this out. We're going to see how this goes. Um, and they are pretty long, so be ready for them. This one is called Adoring Our Advocate Unreservedly. So again, the book is At the Throne of Grace. You can get it, I'm sure, at gty.org. Um, and again, the the um, prayer we're using is our is um, Adoring Our Advocate Unreservedly. <sighs> okay, let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for our heavenly advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, whose death on the cross made propitiation for our sins, perfectly satisfying every demand of your holy justice. It is he who brought us out of guilt and into forgiveness, out of darkness into light, out of our rebellion and into your love, out of death and into life. He delivered us from this evil world into your glorious kingdom. How we praise you for the wonder of your love in Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending your son, the incarnate one, who was despised, rejected, beaten, mocked, and crucified, all in order to atone for our sin. In him your love has outloved I'm sorry, how in him your love has outloved all other loves. Your mercy extends beyond comprehension to sinners, with complete and permanent forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. We therefore long to love you with a love like yours. We know this is not possible, so with the Apostle Peter we plead that you would know our hearts, knowing we truly love you in spite of what it often looks like. Our hearts are too much like stone. We ask that you melt them with your grace. Our private lives are too often graded, I'm sorry, often gated and locked, as if we could shut you out and thereby do what we want. Help us throw open the door and lose the key. May your will rule our lives. We worship you, Father, for your great love and the gift of Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, which is to say God the Son. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for the wondrous gift of salvation you provided for us. We adore you, blessed Spirit, for revealing to us the truth of the gospel and for making our hearts your dwelling place. Heavenly Father, in us may your Son see the fruit of his soul's anguish and be glad. Bring us away from all that we falsely trust, and teach us to rest only in Him. Never let us be callous to the astonishing greatness of the gift of salvation. May we pursue sanctification, ever-increasing holiness, with all our might. Lord Jesus, Master, Redeemer, Savior, take possession of every part of our lives, yours by right through purchase. Sanctify every faculty, fill our hearts with hope. May we flee the many temptations that relentlessly hound us and mortify the sins that continually plague us. May there be no hypocrisy in us. Help us trust you in the hour of distress. Protect us when evildoers pursue us and deliver us from the evil of this present world. Dear Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, we confess that you alone are the giver of every good and perfect gift and you have given us so many things, richly supplying us with things to enjoy. And we are reminded by the passage we have just read that the greatest gift of all is your Son, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his very life in order that we might be freed from sin's bondage. Fill our hearts with gratitude, and may our lives reflect overflowing thankfulness, so that all who see may honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. By the way, the... Uh, text that that's referring to is 1 John 2, 1 through 19. So, and I'm sorry, it actually includes that at the beginning here, but I did not read that. So that's my mistake. Um, cause most of these are based, I mean, he, he's praying these prayers and they're based off specific scriptures. All right. So again, something different we're trying. We'll see how that goes. All right. So our devotion, um, Again, for the evening segment, this is from MacArthur's book, Drawing Near. It is a MacArthur devotional Bible. It's It has a devotional each day, and then it's a read the Bible in a year plan. So we are going to do the daily devotional for January 2nd, and I'm trying to see whether I can read this better with or without my glasses. Probably without. All right, here we go. So um, the, the title here is Experiencing God's Peace, and the text is from Ephesians 1, 20, oh, 1 verse 2. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True peace is God's gift to those who love and obey Him. Throughout history, mankind has sought peace through military alliances, balances of power, and leagues of nations. Yet lasting peace still remains an elusive dream. From, I'm sorry, even, even during times of relative peace, nations struggle with internal strife and crime. I'm sorry, I'm going to take my glasses off. Maybe that'll be better. All right, here we go. The Bible says that man on his own cannot know peace because he is a, a alienated from its source. But we need not depart. True peace is immediately available from God our Father. The God of peace, Romans 15.33. And from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. It's a gift of God's grace to those who love and obey Jesus Christ. The New Testament so clearly teaches the inextricable link between God's grace and peace that grace to you and peace became a common greeting in the early church. Grace is God's great kindness towards those who are undeserving of his favor, but who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the fountain and peace is the stream. As recipients of his grace, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. We are reconciled to him through faith in his Son and we will never experience his wrath. We also have the peace of God, Philippians 4, 7. The Spirit's way of assuming, I'm sorry, the Spirit's way of assuring us that God is in control even in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's why Paul calls in the peace that surpasses all understanding. Again, that's Philippians 4, 7. The world's peace is relative and fleeting because it is grounded in circumstances. God's peace is absolute and eternal because it is grounded in His grace. Does God's peace reign in your heart, or have you allowed sin or difficult circumstances to diminish your devotion to Christ? Suggestions for prayer. Thank God that you have peace with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask the Spirit to reveal any sin that might be hindering God's peace from milling, or I'm sorry, from ruling in your heart. Be prepared to respond in confession and repentance. Ask for opportunities to demonstrate God's peace to others today. All right. Well, that is our opening prayer and devotion for today. And like I said, we're going to continue back in John chapter 17. And we're still focused on John chapter 17, verse 1. So let me go ahead and read that and we're going to dig in. So John 17, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So, again, you know, we're, we're, we're still in the upper room. The upper room discourse has completed. Okay, upper room discourse has completed. His private ministry to his apostles has finished. Hang on, I need some water here. So he's finished that, that upper room discourse, uh, John 13 through 16, that private ministry with them. And then he turns to pray. And we got to remember, you know, this prayer, I mean, as we, as we looked at it, he's in verse 33, he's, and, and I'm sorry, John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you said, so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You have tribula tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. First verse of John 17, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now I try to read those together because we have to remember these chapter and verse divisions were put in by men hundreds and hundreds of years later. When John wrote this gospel, he did not write it with the chapter and verses in it. Okay. So we got to understand when he says Jesus spoke these things, he's referring back to John 16, 33. Fact is, he's really referring back to John, John 13, 14 and 15 and 16, the, the upper room discourse. So he said he spoke those. So he spoke those things and then he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So again, we looked at the setting of his prayer. Okay, we looked at the setting of his prayer. And he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And again, we talked about that. He said, Father, the hour has come. And again, we said, we looked at it. Um, in some of the translations, it says, my father, the hour has come. Which, like we talked about, that that they really, 
that was not the thing they did in that day and time. That was not the way they talked about God in that day and time. They had a problem with the idea of anybody. They, they saw it as blasphemous as anybody um, claiming God as their own. Um, that's why they would not use. I mean, we use now and like, um, you know, I've told you before about the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the one I use. When they translate, they actually translate the original Hebrew and Greek, they translate Yahweh. They don't translate it into Lord. They translate Yahweh because that's what it really was. <clears throat> the reason for many years it was not done that way is because that was especially, excuse me, among the Hebrews, the Jews, they would not even say his name. They felt like even saying his name, his proper name was blasphemous. So even saying his name is blasphemous, of course, calling him your own God would be blasphemous or would be considered blasphemous. It really wasn't, but they would consider it that way. That was something they were concerned about. But so Jesus had said this, this is the setting of the prayer. Father, the hour has come. So like I said, we've dealt with the setting of this prayer. Let's look at the substance of this prayer. So 17, 1b. Glor this is Jesus to God. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, we've seen repeatedly, and, and I've really tried to hammer home in our study of the Gospel of John through the first 16 chapters, how we've seen repeatedly that Jesus has continually sought to glorify God, not himself, not even to do his own will, but to do the will of God so that God would be glorified. We've seen Jesus repeatedly make clear that that was the only reason here. Um, John seven eighteen, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Again, this is Jesus making clear that he himself seeking the glory of God, he is, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Therefore, Jesus basically saying, if I am seeking the glory of God, then I am true and there's no unrighteousness in me. Um, John 13, 31 um, and 32. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the, um, this, I'm sorry, this is when Judas has left. The, this is in the upper room. They're eating. He's washed their feet and stuff. But this is when he has handed Judas the morsel and told Judas to go do what he had done. So he's, he's left now. So John 13, 31 and 32. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So again, he, he continually sought to bring glory to God. Um, we even see it. If we look across his history, um, you know, his 30 some years, his history, Jesus birth brought glory to God. Um, Luke two verses 14 and then verse 20 glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's the angel singing out about the birth of Christ. Then verse 20 and the shepherds went back. So the shepherds have come and seen the baby. So the, those, those angels were singing to the shepherds, saying that to the shepherds, the shepherds go and see the baby. The shepherds are leaving. So verse 20 and the shepherds went back. So they're going back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as was told them. So again, even in his birth, God was glorified both by the angels and by those shepherds. But Jesus, we also see Jesus's teaching bring glory to God. Matthew five sixteen. This is in um, this is in the um, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, "Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven." Again, of course, he's speaking of God. He's teaching them to be such that they would glorify God. John fifteen eighteen. My father is glorified be this, I'm sorry, my father is glorified by these, this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Again, he's trying to tell them that in your going forward and bearing much fruit. And we talked about it when we went through those verses, what was the fruit? What was the real fruit being talked of? It was the making of more disciples. It was the bringing the gospel to all the world 
and from people hearing it coming to a saving faith in Christ. That's the fruit he's talking about that will persevere because it talks about persevering it. So here, Father, my father is glorified be this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. They proved to do exactly what Jesus was doing. So again, even in his teaching, he's teaching them that this is how you glorify God. But his miracles as well, his miracles brought glory to God. Matthew 9, 8. But when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Um, in this case, Jesus had, had made the lame man walk, but the way he had said it is he had forgiven his sins, which, you know, they went, whoa, who gave you authority to do that? You know, they were kind of freaked out by it, but he said, okay, which is easier to say, but then he tells him to walk and he walks. But, and so again, the verse, but when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So even at that point, and as much as we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of John, particularly these later chapters of John, we've seen how the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests and the scribes, have tried to fight against the fact that Jesus has come from God. Even these crowds glorified God because they knew God had given Jesus this power. But at the same time, his death and his resurrection glorified God. Jesus' death and resurrection glorified God. Think about it. He went up on the cross and allowed himself to be executed as a sinless man. He had lived a sinless life. He allowed himself to be executed as a sinless man. And then he was resurrected in three days. In spite of everything that the Jewish leadership tried to do to seal up the tomb, to prevent, because they, they were trying to make the argument, that, oh, the disciples are going to come take him and then claim he had, had been resurrected and all this stuff. Uh, you know, the, 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 the guards were struck dumb. The, the stone was rolled away. The seal was broken. The stones were, was rolled away. Jesus was gone. And then Jesus appeared to hundreds of people afterwards, which made clear that he was from God. It glorified God. They were like, God really sent this man to bring us this gospel. And in them seeing that, many were brought to a saving faith. It's so um, bolstered the ministry of the disciples that were left after his, his ascension that so many more came to a saving, thousands came to a saving great faith in Christ, you know, in groups of thousands. But so we see that as the son has glorified the father, the father has glorified the son. We've seen this. We see it throughout the, go the gospels and we see it in John specifically. John 5, 37. And the father who sent me, he has borne witness about me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Uh, John eight fifty four. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. So he's making clear God has glorified me. The father has glorified me. So this, this is what Jesus is praying about here. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There's this clear exchange. Again, we have to realize this prayer. Um, one of the terms that I've seen used speaking of this is it's called an intertrinitarian prayer. It's a prayer between members of the Trinity. So this is Jesus praying to God. And he is, and this is a true prayer to God. And we talked about it. It is the longest recorded prayer that we have. The words recorded that Jesus makes. And he makes it to God. But again, it's Jesus saying, glorify me that I may glorify you. And, and we're seeing here that there's many, many instances of God being glorified by Jesus and by his works, but then God glorifying him. So Matthew 3, 13 through 17. This is at Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Again, he's, he's talking about not that Jesus has to do this to be righteous, but this is fulfilling the Mosaic law. Going on, and, and verse 15 here. Then he permitted him, 
And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there's God directly testifying to Christ and honoring him, glorifying him right there in, in, in direct form. Luke 9.35, at the transfiguration. Here's another time where God directly glorified him. Luke 9.35, then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then we see it again after the triumphal entry before they go into the upper room. John 12.28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. So that's Jesus first saying that, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So even in that case, God responding to what Christ is saying, glorified the Son. Um, John eleven four. But when John heard or when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death. So this is with Lazarus, okay? And this he turns around to them because um, they had come and they had told him that Lazarus was sick. And Jesus tells the disciples, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified by it. So again, it's for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Again, we're going to see Jesus go. Lazarus is dead, been dead four days, been in the ground four days. So very clearly dead, not, not a, in a coma or any of that. He is dead. He's been dead for four days. Dead such that they're afraid to open, open it when Jesus says to open up the tomb because of the smell of the decay. Okay, so he's dead. But Jesus is saying this, that God will be glorified in that because Jesus is going to resurrect him. And then that Jesus himself will be glorified by it because it'll be made clear that he is from God and he is doing God's will. Therefore, he is glorified by God and he is glorifying God. They happen back and forth. So we see that. But what we also need to see about the substance of this prayer is this prayer is going to fall into three sections. Jesus is going to pray for himself in verses 1 through 5. He's going to pray for his disciples, verses 6 through 19, and he's going to pray for his church, verses 20 through 26. Now, please don't misunderstand this when I'm talking about praying for himself, praying for his disciples, and praying for his church. These are all for the glory of God. Please understand this. These are these are not selfish. These are not self-focused, okay? Um, one one, um, one commentary, gentleman, um, commentarian, gentleman said, when Jesus prays for himself, it is not his own person that he has in view. It is the work of God. So it's the work he's doing for God. Okay, I'm going to go on with the quote. When he prays for his apostles, he commends them to God as agents and continuers of this work. So again, still focusing on the work of God, the work God has set. And when he extends his regard to all believers, present or future, so again, when I was talking about praying for the church, it is as if the, if, sorry, it is as if to the object of this work, in other terms, because these souls are the theater where the glory of his father is to shine forth for his work and the glory of the father are for him one in the same. So again, he wants to glorify the father. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So he, this, the entirety of this prayer, the substance of the prayer, how it prays for himself, prays for his disciples and prays for his church. He's praying for the work he has done for his father, that it would glorify his father. He's praying for the work that his disciples will continue for the father, that it would glorify the father. And he's praying for the church, that the work is being done within the church, that that work being done in the church would glorify the father. That That's it. It's not a selfish focus there. Okay. It's, it's not about me. This is again, Jesus, when he prays for himself, he's praying that the work would glorify God. He's not praying that, oh, please do this for me. I mean, we, we don't even see that when we see him pray in the garden of Gethsemane. And I know we haven't reached that yet in John, but, but I'm sure we've all been enough in the gospels. He, he's very, very clear, you know, Lord, you know, father, you know, take this cup from me. If it, if it can be taken from me, take this cup from me. But if not, your will be done, meaning you be glorified. 
that that's what he's saying there. Your will be done. You be glorified no matter what it costs. And believe me, Jesus is praying the, this prayer here. He knows, please, please don't ever misunderstand this. And believe me, I, I say that coming through many, many years of not, not understanding all of this. Because I've always loved John 17. And, and the reason, so I guess I should tell you this real quick, this is a quick aside. It's called the high priestly prayer. Because in this prayer, Jesus shows himself as our mediator. We, we, we see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. He has three roles there, prophet, priest, and king. And he, as priest, he is our mediator between God and him, between, between us and God. He's the mediator. Okay. Um, he's who provides our salvation. Okay. So this prayer is his high priestly prayer, his mediator's prayer, a true Lord's prayer, the true Lord's prayer. That's why this is called, this section is called the real Lord's prayer. But again, he is praying this prayer in clear understanding of exactly what's going to happen to him. Please don't ever make that mistake. And I say that having gone many, having spent many, many years not being aware of the fact that Jesus is praying this and is focused on God's glory in the face of the fact that he knows he's going to be arrested he knows he's going to be abused. He knows he's going to be whipped almost to the point of, to the point of disfigurement where he can't be recognized, that he's going to be beaten to that point, that he's going to be mocked and ridiculed as an innocent man. The only truly innocent man that ever did or ever will walk the earth and then will be unjustly murdered in the worst possible way, the way meant for the worst possible of the criminals and the lowest of the low. And then he's going to have the wrath for the sins of all who would believe poured upon him. He knows this, yet he's praying that God would glorify him and that he would glorify God. Now, he's saying, God, glorify me, glorify your son, knowing that in that glorification... He's going to be arrested. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be reviled. He's going to be crucified. And then the wrath of God is going to be poured on him. And that will glorify God. He knows that. And he's saying, do it anyways. Let me glorify you. So don't ever think that he's praying this prayer in some pristine, you know, rainbows and unicorns, la la land. That's not where Christ is when he's saying that he knows exactly what's coming. Yet he prays that God would glorify him, which he knows what that's going to take, and that he may glorify God, knowing what that will take. Um, another commentarian, speaking of this prayer, says, The prayer contains the simplest of sentences, though the ideas are profound. It is proof that the difficulty we have in understanding God's truth is not in the complexity of the truth itself or in the language with which it is conveyed, as if it were logarithms or German philosophy, but in our own ignorance, sin, and spiritual lethargy. And it's true. I'm sorry. You read through this prayer. The prayer is very, very clear, very, very simple, very, very blunt. But people struggle with it. I've struggled with it before. And again, it's one of my, it's one of my favorite passages. I've told you before that um, the Jesus washing the feet, at the upper room and in, in the last supper is some of my favorite verses, but this prayer is another one. John 17 is another of my favorite places in the gospel, but this is the substance of the prayer. Jesus is going to pray for himself, the works that he's done, that God would be glorified by it. And thus that he would be glorified, that Jesus himself would be glorified. Then he prays for his disciples, that the disciples in continuing that work, that they, they would be empowered to continue that work and thus glorify God in that work. And thus the son be still glorified more. And that, that he prays for the church, for the believers, that the work would continue in them so that God would be glorified by that work continuing in them. And that in that, Jesus Christ would be glorified even knowing what that will bring in his crucifixion. But he prays it. 
because he's there to do the will of God and the will of God only. And in that God is glorified and the son is also glorified. All right. That's going to do it for this evening. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope this time in the word with for us together helps you to gather a better understanding of the word of God, a better grasp of the scripture for you and I both. Um, and then it helps to shape our walk, that our walk will improve, um, that our walk will be more and more like that of Christ. All right, let's go ahead and close out the session with the third day evening prayer. It's called Before Sleep. Let's pray. God of all sovereignty, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy name most excellent, thy glory above the heavens. Ten thousand minister to thee, ten thousand times ten thousand stand before thee. In thy awful presence we are less than nothing. We do not approach thee because we deserve thy notice, for we are sinners. Our necessities compel us, thy promises encourage us, our broken hearts incite us, mediator draws us, thy acceptance of others moves us. Look thou upon us and be merciful unto us. Convince us of the penalty and pollution of sin. Give us faith to believe and believing to have life in Jesus. May we enter into his sufferings. Let us see thy hand in the instruments of our grief rejoicing that they are from thy, ever, thy overruling providence. Let not our weeping hinder sowing, nor sorrow duty. While living in a world of change, let us seek the abiding city, but with us, be with us to our journey's end, that we may glorify thee in death as in life. We bless thee for preservation, supplies, mercies, and to, keep, and to thee, keeper of souls, we commit all we are and have. May no evil befall us, no sickness come nigh us, no horror disturb us, May our conscience be clear, our hearts pure, our sleep sweet, and with the innumerable company who neither slumber nor rest, we join in ascribing blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb upon the throne forever and ever. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.